This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To view faculty disclosures or to learn how to claim CME credit, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org backslash university. This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated. Hi, my name is Jay Raman, and uh, I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to another of our AUA uh, Expert Exchange podcast series, specifically focusing on discussions in genital urinary cancers. And today's specific podcast is on the topic of novel imaging for high-risk prostate cancer. Uh, it's really my pleasure uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Jim Weissach. Um, I've known Dr. Weissach for almost 20 years uh, now. He is uh, presently a member of the urology faculty at uh, NYU Langone Health, and his practice is uh, urologic oncology, uh, specifically uh, with an interest in imaging and image-guided uh, therapies, whether that be targeted biopsies, targeted treatments, um, but despite being a, a New Yorker for many years now, um, he, he holds on to his uh, Chicago roots as, uh, and, and is a steadfast uh, Chicago fan. Um, what, is, is that Cubs, Jim, or is that White Sox? Or, you, uh, or is this Bulls? Or where, where are you there? Cubs, Bears, Blackhawks. Uh, and I go down with the ship on, on each of those. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Jim, really w welcome, it, it, thank you so much for your time. It's really, uh, it's really our pleasure to have you here today. Well, thanks, Jay. Thanks for that introduction, and I, I do appreciate uh, having me on today. I am actually broadcasting from Chicago. I was here yesterday for the uh, the Lug Pub meeting. Neil Shore, a fellow uh, Cornell grad, invited me out to talk yesterday a little bit on uh, where I, I do a, the most of my work was, you know, MRI targeted biopsy of the prostate and and some of other other things. But today it'd be I find very interesting to shift to, uh, I think what is a very interesting and exciting uh, and rapidly evolving part of uh, prostate cancer management with novel imaging. And, you know, the title of the talk that we set up was, you know, novel imaging for the high uh, risk patient. And I think it's a very rapidly changing environment. Uh, what I'm going to draw on uh, for the talk are some publications that are not even or just barely a year old, and I would hesitate to say that they're already <coughs> outdated um, because of how quickly this field is moving. Uh, and it's an exciting time because there is some substantial, I think, improvement in the tools because of these developments. Um, you know, so I think you know, a good starting off point for the discussion is what exactly do we mean by uh, advanced prostate cancer. And I would refer the viewers and listeners to uh, Ed Trabulski's, um publication from June of 2020. And this is exactly what I mean. These things are relatively uh, recent publications, but also 
relatively outdated in that there have been some major changes in the interim. Uh, but what they presented in that was the optimum in imaging strategies for advanced prostate cancer. It's an ASCO guideline. And the reason I think it's a good reference to start with is they give some ideas of where to fit the, the rationale and framework for these new imaging techniques. But they also give us an idea of, you know, what, would, what do we mean by advanced prostate cancer? So they give some critical definitions, right? Men with localized prostate cancer who are at initial diagnosis, we are worried about have occult metastases somewhere. Okay. That's one. Uh, men who have been treated and have clinical or biochemical progression. Um, and so we need to identify who those people are with advanced. And then men with known metastatic disease at any point along treatment, and we want to further evaluate with those imaging. So th those are some of the key points of who would be the advanced patient. I think for today's talk, primarily let's focus on men who are recently diagnosed with high uh, risk disease. And so let's get into what that means, because I think there are some de varying definitions of what high risk diseases, intermediate risk disease. And if you look at NCCN guidelines, if you look at the AUA Astro SUO guidelines, you get a, a, a sort of a table and you, you see a man, he has an elevated PSA, you do a biopsy, you get a diagnosis and you have to then collate and condense all of this information and give them an idea of what their risk level is. And that's really a critical component for setting men out on their initial uh, decision-making process. And for the purposes of the, these talks and purpose of what we want to uh, explore with these novel imaging is who is the high-risk patient? And why does that matter? Well, it matters because we know that men who look clinically localized with high-risk disease, and we've gotten conventional imaging, and we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, it, you know, they undergo definitive whole gland treatment and they have around a 30 to 40% risk of metastases, right? So there's a miss in our staging for these high-risk men. And if we could do a better job identifying who has the occult metastases, it will change management. Now, that's a little bit down the line, but I think that is why that's so important. And so who are we talking about in the AUA Astro definition of high-risk? Men with PSAs over 20, men that have Gleason grade group 4 or 5, and men that have clinical or DRE determined clinical stage T3 or higher. So you know, that man comes into your office, you already are worried. Uh, I think your clinical impression is that he would have a higher probability of having metastatic disease. So what do you do? And the, you know, the NCCN guideline, the AUA Astro guideline is you need to get some CT or soft tissue evaluation and you need to get a bone scan. And so that's the starting point. And those conventional imagings uh, modalities are readily available to most clinicians. And I think we, we pretty much routinely obtain those for these scenarios. Uh, it's important to note that that does not apply to men with the, inf the favorable intermediate or the lower, very low risk. And there are guidelines to say, don't obtain those type of studies for those men because your yield is so low. It's a waste of resources. And Dan McCarve in our institution at NYU has done a lot of work to try to highlight that. And the overuse of staging imaging, I think is, is an important consideration, but we're talking about the other end of the spectrum where, where you do need something. And so what, what, what do we do? Well, we get a CT scan or an MRI of the pelvis, pelvis, and let's talk about that, soft tissue evaluation. What we're really looking for, a lymph node evaluation. And there's a fundamental problem here. The sensitivity ranges anywhere from 40 to 50%. It's probably closer to the 40%. 
And you think, okay, great. Well, CT maybe, you know, it's you, you know, you're looking at the, the anatomy of the lymph nodes and you're looking for size, morphology, and you think, okay, well, maybe an MRI of the pelvis is a little bit better, but meta-analysis does not uh, prove that out. You know, in MRI lymph node evaluations around 39, 40% sensitivity as well. It's right there with CT. So unfortunately, there's a limitation with the soft tissue evaluation. Next piece of uh, inf information we get, because the next metastatic site for these men would be in the bone. And this is actually a good jumping off point because the bone scan is actually a nuclear medicine study, which is where we're seeing the advances. And so that's why I like to sort of use this as a framework to, to take the talk you know, onward. So how do we do bone scans? Well, we use uh, what's called a technetium labeled radioisotope. It's a gamma emitter. Okay, there's a lot of really interesting science behind these studies. And I think for urologists, we do have to have some fundamental understanding of how nuclear medicine studies are, are working and what we're measuring and the isotopes and, and some of their, their uh, features because it does influence how these imaging studies will be applied and availability of these studies. And so first off with technetium, we know is, is using the radioisotope that's a gamma emitter it's incorporated into the bone structure and it picks up osteoblastic activity. It gets incorporated. It has about a six hour half-life. And so you administer this in the IV and you can measure with a gamma, with a gamma scan. SPECT is a three-dimensional version of that. Where you're seeing the uptake of that radio label on the bony structures gives you an idea that potentially those are osteoblastic activity that could be consistent with a metastatic site in the bone. And that's been shown to be useful for many cancers, uh, but prostate cancer, the sensitivities are unfortunately pretty low. And again, what we're talking about are areas where men who have potentially PSAs in the 10 to 15 range, 10 to 20 range, or even over 20, and the sensitivity and detection rates are still less than 50%. So there's a fairly high false negative rate with technetium. It's just not that specific and it's just can't really in, or sensitive and can't really pick up some of those findings before we need, you know, in a way that would be useful for us. And so where can we get? So it seems like the, the take home is high risk prostate cancer localized, a significant or at least a proportion of these men will have microscopic disease that is probably outside the prostate and therefore they're at risk of failure. And our conventional modalities, as you mentioned, CT, MRI, and technetium-based bone scan, maybe are not refined enough to identify these sites of metastasis. Is that is that sort of an accurate accurate summary of of you know where we are right now? Absolutely, I think that's that's the crux of the problem. You know, you want to provide them a man with a pathway that you think is going to give them good disease control, and we just have too many early failures or, you know, relatively early failures because of our, our inability to find that disease that is not localized, Got it. but we're offering so, localized treatment. So then, you know, you, you so that you, I think that was the logical segue that you were getting to, which is pet, uh, pet-based imaging. And, and, you know, in many cases, it seems like it's a little bit of a, these nuclear medicine studies, almost like alphabet soup, right? There's all these different types of uh, tracers, different indications, so maybe walk us through a little bit um, those that are, you know, those that are out there that are sort of germane to, to prostate cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So this is important for, I think, urologists as this area is evolving. 
the there is an alphabet soup. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of things get thrown around. But let's talk about PET scans in general. What is PET? PET is positron emission tomography. So all the radio labels, the alphabet soup, are essentially uh, very interestingly uh, came out of like the 1930s and 40s. Even some of the work in the Manhattan Project led to the development of devices called cyclotrons. And basically, what the most common uh, positron emitting uh, radio label is F18. Okay, it's fluorine 18. How is that made? It's made by hitting, taking protons onto uh, oxygen and making that it to bombard fluorine. And you get these these radioisotopes, which don't last very long. And so they all have a half-life. And so that's an important feature that I'm going to talk about. But fluorine 18 is very commonly used. It's also part of the most commonly used PET tracer, which is fluorodeoxyglucose or FDG. FDG PET have been around a long time and they're actually a very valid staging imaging for many, many disease processes, but unfortunately not very good for prostate cancer. They work on the glucose uptake, the GLUT1 transmembrane um, protein uptakes glucose. And so in, a, in it's called the Warburg effect. Tumors tend to be hypermetabolic. So if you give a glucose tagged with the F18, the tumors tend to pick it up. Well, unfortunately, prostate cancer in most of these settings that we're talking about, the initial diagnostic setting uh, and staging aren't that hypermetabolic. And so that F18 FDG PET doesn't work that well. But there have been some advances with ligands to the F18 that can improve for prostate cancer. We're going to go into more of those details. But before we do that, let's talk about some of the other molecules that are out there. There's carbon-11. Carbon-11 is also tagged to something called choline. So you have a carbon-11 choline PET tracer. And then you have gallium-68. So I'm just going to review these four real quickly. Technetium-99, half-life six hours. F18, half-life 110 minutes. Carbon-11, 20 minutes. Gallium-68 is about 68 minutes. So all of those time frames matter because if you make it and its half-life is 20 minutes like it is for a carbon-11, you've got to use it quickly. And there's a whole realm of detail that goes into that. But as a urologist, that does influence what might be available to you. Because if you don't have a cyclotron, getting carbon, um, giving carbon 11 is going to be difficult. And so there has to be some mechanism to distribute these radio labels. So carbon 11, let's talk briefly about that. Carbon 11 choline is a marker that is incorporated into lipo, uh, lipogenic um, molecules. And therefore, again, with hypercellular uh, processes like a tumor, they're continually making more cell membrane because the cells are dividing. So you have to, they have to proliferate more of the, the lipogenic areas around the cell membrane. And so the carbon 11 gets incorporated and therefore it's more commonly seen in tumors. This was approved in 2012 for men with concern for recurrent disease. You could give carbon-11 and you can say, well, look, this is a site of metastasis concern because it's actually picking up more of the carbon-11 than the surrounding tissue. That's a great marker. It's actually pretty widely used, I think, in Europe and in Japan. Uh, I haven't had any clinical experience with the United States. 
Another interesting feature of it, however, is because it's uh, a fat-soluble marker, it's hepatically cleared, it doesn't show up in the urinary tract at all. So it's actually very good in a post-prostatectomy setting because the bladder and the urethral anastomosis, you're looking for prostate bed recurrences. If you don't have that um, uptake in the urinary tract, it actually can give you a little clearer picture in the pelvis. So that's an interesting uh, finding there. The next one would be fluciclovine. This came on the market in or FDA approval in 2016. This is more commonly known as um, Axiomen. It's pretty widely available, at least in New York now, and we've been using it at NYU. We have some pretty, uh, uh, I'd say, several years of clinical experience with it. And what fluciclovine does, and I'm just going to stay with fluciclovine. We could call it Axiomen. There's a whole lot of alphabet soup that go around with it. It's tagged to fluorine 18, so it's got a 110-minute half-life, which gives you a little bit of longer time. So that's why you could kind of make a regional cyclotron and deliver it to different sites in the area. That's why it's become available. It's an amino acid transporter tag. Again, it gets incorporated specifically into prostate cells and has some specificity for that reason. It was then trialed in a number of trials and a lot of single center series uh, showing that it has some activity in identifying and being specific for prostate cancer recurrences. And in 2016, FDA cleared it in the same way that they did with carbon-11 choline to say for men who have a suspicion for recurrence, you can order this test to help identify. This is two, so those are two FDA-approved imaging, novel imaging uh, techniques that I think are, are good to know about and probably available in, in wider uh, areas than some of the more recent approvals. And that's what we'll get into next. So prostate-specific membrane antigen, PSMA. So this is essentially, uh, interestingly, not a prostate-specific um, enzyme. It's a trans, um, trans um, a membrane peptide that does get expressed in prostate cells significantly more than other cells, but it is also present in like the proximal tubules of the kidney, uh, the jejunal lining, and uh, some of the parotid gland uh, cells can actually express this membrane. But if you tag that enzyme with F18, you can use it as a PET marker. So the F18 molecules can bind to the PSMA, and you can get a specific uh, interaction there that the, the positrons will get picked up and the PET scans are actually specific. So this is a very good uh, marker, and in 2020, the first FDA approval for this marker came out for what's called gallium-68 PSMA-11. So there's a lot of names here, but that is the first PSMA PET marker that was approved, and it had two sites that was approved for. And remember, gallium-68 has a 68-minute half-life, and they only are producing in two areas, UCSF, UCSF and UCLA. And so that was the first areas that we could could get that. The FDA gave that approval about a year ago. May of this year, uh, what I'm going to call, uh, Polarify is the brand name, but we'll call it PYL, PSMA. It's a different ligand. It's a F18 or a fluorine 18 ligand of the PSMA molecule. Gives you that 110-minute half-life, which improves your ability to then produce it and distribute it. And this received uh, FDA clearance in uh, May of this year. So that's why this is very fresh. This marker, PSMA specific, is now available for the FDA approval for men 
who have advanced prostate cancer or concerns. Now, this is a little bit of a very important point. The PSMA imaging FDA approval is actually broader than it is for the axiom and the uh, carbon-11 choline. This is for men who we think do have a risk of having uh, metastatic disease, specifically those who are high risk and for those who have equivocal findings on conventional imaging. And so you can go ahead and order this test through FDA clearance in those settings. You can pick it out and say, look, you have Gleason 9 disease. I'm going to go ahead and send you straight for a PSMA PET scan as your staging imaging. You can actually pour the NCCN guidance bypass conventional imaging. And, and it seems like the other the no, other notable point is that it is not for necessarily for recurrent disease, right? So this can be upfront as part of the evaluation where I, if I remember correctly, the axiomen, the fluciclovine is, is predominantly in the biochemical recurrent setting after primary therapy. Is that right? Absolutely, 100%. So the FDA clearance for axiomen in the setting of concern for recurrent disease. This is a game changer with the PSMA PET. It changes everything it, to say, look, you now need a staging imaging study, and I'm not going to order that CT in the bone scan. I'm just going to order a PSMA PET scan. Changes everything. Now, whether you can actually get that paid for and whether it's available in your, your region is an entirely different uh, beast and is not really in the scope of the talk, but I would say that that's coming, okay? So it's a very important concept that I think really gets to where these these uh, tests are going to have a place in our diagnostic pathway. But the reality is, you know, we don't quite yet know how well they work because they're really only studied in in limited studies so far, right? And uh, for example, uh, there's a meta-analysis looking at PSMA PET in the primary setting, and based on about five studies, we're talking you know, from 2015 to 2017, and we're talking less than 500 total men, the pooled sensitivity for the, uh, for PSMA petting in the primary setting is around 77%. And the specificity is very good. It's about 97%. But that's great. Look, that's a significant improvement over what we discussed earlier with the CT and the bone scan. But again, you know, there's going to be a growth in clinical understanding and knowledge of that, of these tests as they get rolled out. And I'll highlight what that means by looking at the axiomen uh, experience, because that's now much more widely understood. There's larger trials looking at axiomen and what some of those settings can tell us. And for example, with axiomen in a recent meta-analysis that um, Sarush Barami published in Nature Reviews, saying basically, look, this has around a detection rate anywhere from 55% overall uh, sensitivities go up as PSA levels go up. But when you're talking at these low PSA levels in the recurrent setting, it can be as low as 30%. Now, that doesn't mean it's not useful in those settings, but this is something that as the real world experience evolves with these tests, you start to get, I think, a better understanding of how it plays out in, in clinical practice. There's so let me, many. Let me, let me ask you just maybe specifically on that point. So we're, we're, let's talk about axiomen PET. And we talked about how the FDA approval is really for biochemical recurrent disease, right, after primary therapy. And, and you alluded to a really good point, which is the performance characteristics probably vary based upon the thresholds at which you order these studies, right? Um, maybe give me a sense or give our listeners a sense. 
you know, when do you, in clinical practice, for example, do you use an absolute, let's say, if we just look at Axiom and PET, do you use a, a certain threshold where in your practice you feel like it's valuable to order this? Do you look at the delta change, meaning maybe it doesn't matter what the absolute is, but but the, the velocity change of a PSA? How do you use this specific study when you're evaluating these patients? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, great question. I think you have to apply what you consider the threshold for a biochemical recurrence definition in as, as, as one of your best markers to say, this is uh, when I should be looking. Uh, obviously, any time after radical prostatectomy, and we'll focus on that situation, um, where you have a rising and detectable PSA, I worry clinically when it's 0.05 and goes to 0.07 and goes to 0.09, I think that's worrisome. Uh, whether that's technically a recurrence by, by standard definitions, it's not, but I would start exploring by getting some imaging at that time. Now, I, I will tell you that Axiomen at those low levels of PSA is not very effective. Its sensitivity is very low. And if you look at PSMA in the secondary setting with a PSA below 0.5, its sensitivity is also poor, 45%. So everything improves in terms of sensitivity as the PSA gets higher. So look, pick, pick you know, your number, uh, 0.2, uh, you know, and even still the sensitivity is not great for any of these tests. But I would get baseline scans, and they do serve in that setting as an important corollary later on. If you find nothing and you don't change your approach, you know you 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 have something to compare it to later. That's useful in many instances. Uh, but there's a thirty percent detection rate for Axiomen in that setting, so you might pick something up, and that takes us to something that I think is very uh, yet to really be uh, defined, but what about the treatment of oligometastatic disease? And if you could identify those areas and, and, and could you impact the outcome of the disease? And if you look at, there's two studies I think that are important there. First is uh, the Falcon trial, which the, you used Axiomen to identify uh, men who met biochemical failure, both in post-radical prostatectomy or both, uh, or after radi radiation. And they said, well, what do you plan to do with that man? And they recorded what their plan was, whether it was a salvage, you know, prostatectomy for radiation failures, or whether it was some sort of ablative strategy or it was ADT. And then they said, okay, well, now you get the MRI axiomen or a pet axiomen, and it gives you information. Do, how often does it change your, your management? And it was significant. They met all their criteria that all it, it drastically changed management because of the findings in those settings we're using the the acumen staging that's falcon very interesting study it actually got it closed early because it was so effective and then you look at the oriel trial which is a phase two trial and i don't think it's fully accrued and in, in, in analyzed yet but basically the oriel trials an assessment of using these imaging studies to identify oligometastatic disease and then treating them with sbrt the oligomets and uh, well, what can we say about that is that the initial data on that looks very encouraging that the men treated with SBRT to the oligomets are having a significant improvement in their early outcomes. And it's a very small study that's been published so far, but I think it's, it's going to be very good. I think that basically, I'll, just to give you some numbers, that at six months, uh, 54 men in Oriole 
And the men that were treated with uh, SBRT versus observation had a 19% progression versus a 61% progression in the observation arm. So there may be something there. And there's still a lot to be learned. But the fact of the matter is these imaging studies for the advanced patient could have value in the primary setting as well as in the recurrent setting. So one question I would have for you, if we look at PSMA PET, right, and we look at it in, in the, the primary staging population, high-risk prostate cancer. Um, any thoughts on whether this, this may be just more of, of the Will Rogers effect, that uh, when we are identifying the disease, um, and, and what is going to really be the impact on long-term disease mortality, right? So sure, we're gonna probably pick up more um, nodal disease, probably more M1 disease, uh, or even in some cases, distant disease, um, would it be fair to say that we still have to determine what the, and I'm sure that'll implicate how we treat the patients, but the long-term outcomes still need to be vetted from, from this, or, or how would you think about this? Well, absolutely. There's going to be, if you begin to change management on a different staging accuracy, have a Will Rogers phenomenon occur. I think that's essentially going to be inevitable. You're taking people who you called M0 and making them M1, uh, you know, and it's going to change the outcomes for your M1s that you you traditionally expected because now you're going to have lower burden of disease in that category that you, you know, and, and vice versa. So that will happen. Uh, it's interesting to see what some of the early data is on the oligo oligometastatic treatments. Maybe there is something there that would open an avenue of, to new strategies because we'll see some effectiveness there. But it will take a long time to understand that. I still, still think there's room for clinical trial development here to get a better understanding. And like I said, this is at the very outset, this is rapidly advancing. Uh, PSMA with the PYL ligand is just starting to become available. And what's, what's it going to look like in the clinical environment and how we're going to use it is going to evolve in the next three to five years will be entirely different discussion. And we'll have much more understanding of where this has has advantages and disadvantages and how we're using it. Uh, and then that there's this whole theranostics component that's coming down the line, which is very interesting. And there's additional- well, Maybe just for our listeners, um, and it, can you just introduce this, this concept of theranostics? I, you know, I certainly um, maybe lutetium, there's other agents that are coming out, but maybe just for our, our listeners, explain how does theranostics work and then and, and maybe, you know, where does this play out down the next five or 10 years? Yeah, so Theranostics, I think, is is essentially like taking these nuclear medicine tracers, which can be targeted to a specific protein, and coupling them with another form of radio treatment labels. So, for example, the lutetium-177 molecule can be cu uh, coupled to the PSMA, ligand and then you target it to these specific PSMA expressing lesions and it can create a local destruction. So think about it as almost nuclear medicine based treatment. It's not novel. We've been doing it for thyroid cancer for many, many, many years. So the idea is you're actually directing some radiotherapy to a specific site. And I think that we, we have to see where this goes. It's very early. Uh, but it shows some potential promise for specifically cancers that we know are expressing a target. That does not equal all cancers. So this is not the end of the 
prostate cancer management as we know it by just putting radio labels in and just giving an injection. But there will be areas where this may have salvage potential in the next five to 10 years. And so we'll see. I think it's exciting. I think it's interesting. But as urologists, what we have to do is be uh, up to date in the science behind the radioisotopes. We've got to understand the way the radio uh, labeling works, what it means to get these type of PET scans, what it means to uh, interpret them as well as as well as understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of each of these these ligands are in these uh, radioisotopes. And, and as you sort of alluded to early on, even when you look at the theranostics, that that there are there are normal tissues right in the body that are PSMA expressing. So so in addition to the benefits of of treating these salvage situations, there's probably going to be some also associated uh, toxicity and side effects from destruction of whether it's you know parotid or or, or small bowel or whatever it might be. Um, and, and if I remember correctly, I think that these are, these techniques have been used a little bit more outside the U S in these sort of end stage settings, right? Those that are castrate resistant who are now sort of at, at these salvage options, but one wonders as technology refines do they, as with most things keep moving earlier into the disease space. Absolutely. You know, and you know, bone marrow uptake and sort of get severe anemia, you know, who knows, you know, but there's a lot to be learned there. But the reality is it's not that much, it's not science fiction, right? We have the techniques and the capabilities to start realizing these approaches and it's exciting. I think it's an interesting time uh, to see where, where these, these areas continue to evolve. Look, we need to be actively involved in, in obtaining these imaging studies where we can, interpreting them, just like we did with MRI of the prostate. You know, I mean, this is, these are, the advances that are going to improve our understanding of the disease, improve our ability to provide treatment. And so uh, we can't just say, you know, look, try to, uh, you know, forget about it. We've got to be really out there and, and on the forefront of this. No, it's great. I think you're totally right, Jim. I mean, you know, although it's a different sort of imaging modality, it really is sort of following a lot of what falls into our bread and butter, which is really diagnostics and staging, right? I mean, as urologists or urologic practitioners, that we, that's what we do. And, and then the onus was on us, you know, five, seven, 10 years ago to really become proficient in MRI because that became a basic tool we used for, for you know, not only screening, but also diagnostics and biopsy. And now we have sort of this new staging tool. And, and I think the onus is on us to make sure that we uh, get facile with, you know, learning, interpreting, and, and as you alluded to, using these these techniques. Well, I, I really want to, first of all, thank uh, Jim Weissach, his sort of thought and, and understanding of, of um, you know, not just imaging in general with prostate cancer, but he's very, uh, you're, you're very eloquent, Jim, in how you, you sort of describe, um, you know, pet-based imaging for distant disease. And, and I really want to thank you for your time. I want to tell our audience, if they would like any other information, please visit us at auanet.org university. And again, Jim, thank, thanks for joining us, even though you're, you're traveling um, uh, and appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. Just one other plug, you know, the AUA uh, provides courses on these. Uh, Mark Bierlin, a good friend of mine, has run courses on these at the AUA uh, in annual meetings. So, you know, for viewers and readers and listeners who are interested, there's more learning that you can get through the AUA on, on these uh, areas as well. Perfect. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it.